I'm, I'm the, the pastor that leads The Well, which is our college and career ministry, and uh, Jeff, as he said, also was in the country of Hungary this week, so I had the privilege of preparing, and I get the privilege of delivering the message this morning, and uh, I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are excited. I hope you've been uh, thinking about this as you've gone through your week, um, and, and we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, because we're going to continue. We're going to finish that chapter this morning. As you're turning there, I have a question for the parents in attendance. You know, have, you, have you ever disciplined your child? Hopefully. That's not the end of the question. Have you ever disciplined your child and then turned around and realized, man, I messed up because they were just being seven? Anybody ever guilty of that one? I've, I've done that, right? My son is seven right now, and, and there are often occasions to where he acts like it, and it irritates me, right? Because I'm, because I'm old and grumpy and impatient and all, all, all of that stuff. And so, so it's, it's difficult sometimes when you get on the other side of it, like, oh man, now, now I gotta apologize, now we gotta, he was just being seven, it's okay. And if you've ever done this, if you've ever, you know, been guilty of the same, it can be difficult to determine sometimes the difference between immaturity and, and sinfulness, misbehavior, right? Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes those things show some of the same signs, right? some of the same results. Sometimes everything's out of order. And we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that, that Paul is instructing them and how they've messed, the, messed up the order of some things. So, for example, you know, we have a, a playroom in the basement and we have too many toys, that's just a fact. And they'll sometimes have the toys not where they belong, sometimes, often, and we'll say, hey, you know, it's time to clean that toy room up. And, and do you think if we say it once, that, that the toy room, you know, in the next 10 minutes is just clean and great and wonderful? No, of course, you know, we've got to go back, and, and we've got to set, you've got to peek around the corner. Okay, well, nothing's happened. What's, what's going on? Well, sometimes it's such a mess that, that even we have no idea where to start. Right? But, but for my son, specifically, since I'm, I'm talking about Weston, a seven-year-old boy, his, he's got extra energy and, and a diminished capacity for attention span. Right? It's a bad combination for the little guy. He's getting better. He's getting better all the time. But what he needs me to do is to come down and say, hey, bud, uh, why don't you just ignore everything else except for the 28 balls scattered around the room? Here's some order. Here's some direction for where you need to start. And so he'll start, he'll put those away. All right, bud, good job. Go fold the blankets. Go get the Legos. Right? Go, go get the Matchbox cars. 324 of those, I think, at last count. Ridiculous, I know. Right? He needs specific order and instruction because he's young. He's immature. He doesn't know where to start. If I don't know where to start in the middle of a mess, how's he going to know? And so sometimes I need to know the difference. And we've seen both of those aspects in the Corinthian church. We've seen a, a vast amount of immaturity. Sometimes immaturity that lasts is more than immaturity, isn't it? Right? And so on your sheet, I've got immaturity versus insubordination. There's a difference. Both of which need some extra attention, and both of which need some extra instruction. And that's what we've been seeing in the midst of this book and this chapter, specifically. So what we've seen over and over is that Paul is confronting both the issues of immaturity and sinfulness. And chapter 11 is actually divided into three sections, and each of those sections is marked by Paul's usage of the word praise. Right? He uses this word praise. The first time we see it is in verse 2, but let's pick up and start in verse 1. He says, Be ye followers of me. He's giving them direction and order. Even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, there's the word, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances, the list of orders and details given by an authority, the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Okay, I gave you specific orders, I gave them to you in order, and I expect them to be done as such. Right? And he says, I praise you because you're remembering these things. In verse 3 he says, but I would have you know, and he goes on and talks about the headship of the household, and we saw that two weeks ago with Pastor Troy. 
and he gives them further instruction. He doesn't come down on them hard. He just says, hey, you've, you've got this one messed up. So maybe, maybe it was an issue of immaturity, and they just didn't know any better. I'm suspecting that was not the case. I'm sure Paul had given them the proper instruction, but he doesn't come down on them hard. The second time Paul uses the word praise, he's not handing it out so freely, right? That's in verse 17, and we saw this last week with Pastor Jeff. He says, now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worst. So Paul's message was a charge to them to work harder, to know the truth that has been delivered to them in the order it was delivered to them in, so that they could be approved and so that they could be unified. The problem was they were divided. They were being immature. Paul had no words of praise because of that division. And then the third time we see Paul mention this word praise is actually in verse 22, but we're going to pick up and we're going to read in verse 20. So look there at verse 20. He says, When ye come together, therefore unto one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. See, if we read it that way, it looks, it sounds like he's giving instruction, but he says, but when ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So he's divided this chapter into three praises, or one praise and two anti-praise, right? The lack thereof. He's coming down on them because they've got some things messed up. And Paul's saying, hey, you know how I know that you've got this thing messed up? Get it on your sheet this way. Some came together being empty. Others came together having taken excess. The church was and is supposed to ensure that all have and had enough. Right? He says, I know that you've got this one out of order because that's not at all what the church has ever been about. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 47, he says, And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, all men as every man had need. Right? They weren't there taking before one another. They were there making sure that no one had need. He says, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all, all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Then we see again in Acts chapter 4, and there are several other examples. We're just looking at two right now. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, he says, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great peace was upon them all. Neither was there anyone or any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Paul says, you guys are coming, and one of you is full, and the other one's empty. What are you getting out of order? That's not how I delivered this to you. That's not what I instructed you about. Philippians 2.4 says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Stop worrying about yourself, and take care of somebody else. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Seek to do things that add value to someone who's lacking. Romans 15, 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves. He says, if you're jumping in line first, well, there's one of maybe two things that's true of you. You need to because you're weak, and somebody else has put you ahead of them, or you're just selfish. That's out of order. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. See, this is a body. right? And, and if your physical body, when you smash your thumb, everything else hurts. Or else you forget about what other pains you have because that thing hurts. 
When you have a fever, your skin hurts. There's nothing wrong with your skin. You have a fever. Right? And the church is a body, and if none of the body cares when one of the body is hurting, Paul says, that's out of order. That's not how I delivered this to you. This is not the reason and the way that you come together. That's not the ordinance. So we'll read the rest of the chapter together. We're going to unwrap this passage so that we can understand what I've titled the proper order of communion. Let's pick up in verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. And that's just the introduction. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you've called us to remembrance because life gets busy and we move fast and we fall behind and we're distracted so easily. Lord, we many times are that seven-year-old boy with a short attention span. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to call into remembrance all the things that you want us to see today and help us to confront ourselves the way you want us to do it. I pray, Lord, that you're glorified. I pray that we would be closer to you today because of the things that we hear and how we react to them. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Paul is reminding the church of the details that he has apparently already given them concerning communion. Right? He moved from giving them extra information to giving them you know, a challenge to work harder because they were being lazy, and, and now we're seeing that he's moving into rebuke because they're not doing what he's given them to do. They're not doing it in the right order. They're being selfish. So the first thing that, that we get to, though, is he's calling them to remembrance. And number one on your study sheet is remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. Right? And there are two elements that he points out in this passage. He points out the bread, and he points out the cup of wine, and after talking about each one, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So the first one we're going to look at is obviously the bread, and it says the breaking of bread on your sheet, letter A, the breaking of bread represents Christ and his body. The breaking of bread represents Christ and his body, and we see that in verse 24. He says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Before we get to the, the specific aspect of the bread, there's some other things that the Lord has called us to be in remembrance of. If you look in Scripture, there's all kinds of things that we need to remember. One specific thing we see on point one is remember what you've been delivered from. Right? There's something specific that the Lord has come to this earth to deliver us from. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. He says, You hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh. Check this out. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's all we were capable of. 
and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his love, or his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul takes time to call them the church of Ephesus. He takes time to call them into remembrance of where they came from. If you know anything about the book of Ephesians, Paul is beginning this book and talking about their identity in Christ. In order for you to understand your identity in Christ, you've got to remember, don't you forget where you came from. Don't forget the comparison, the, the stark contrast of who you used to be. You used to be a child of disobedience. You used to be a, among the children of wrath. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was nothing you did to approach him. There's a, a strange passage in Exodus chapter 17. And God is talking to Moses. He says, the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So God says, there's an enemy of yours, Israel, and I'm going to wipe them from the face of the earth and everybody's going to forget they even existed, but I don't want you to forget that your enemy existed, and I don't want you to forget that I wiped them from the earth. You see, what's the, what the principle here is, God doesn't want you to forget what he's brought you out of. The rest of the world's going to look at you, hopefully, and not recognize you as the same person you used to be. They're going to forget how awful you were. Don't you forget what he brought you out of. Judges chapter 2 talks about a nation that forgot what God could do. The fathers of Israel forgot to teach, or were neglectful to teach, the nation, their children, what God was capable of. They didn't take them back to the pile of stones and, and teach them what God had done and what God could do, and they forgot. And the rest of the book of Judges is a mess. It's a nation making selfish decisions. They've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what he's capable of. They've forgotten what he had done. And so, only when they got themselves in a big heap of trouble did they come asking for help. The second thing we need to remember is, is who delivered us. What you were delivered from is, is very important, but it means nothing if you don't know who delivers. John 6.35, talking about the bread Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He's talking spiritually, isn't he? John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. I, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So to partake in this bread, it's done by faith. He's not talking about physically eating his flesh. This is a spiritual application. So how do we, how do, we do that? And we see that in Romans 10, 9 and 10. He says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Right? It has everything to do with who? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The bread of life. You have to go through him. And this verse introduces us to the next thing we need to remember, and that's how he delivered you. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how. Romans also tells us that the wages of sin is death, but Christ died so that we don't have to. And again, we're not talking about this physical removal from this earth. We're not talking about one out of one of us are going to die. It's just the averages we're dealing with. Right? That's the numbers. Discouraging, but that's not what Christ is concerned about, and that's not what you should be concerned about. 
You should be concerned about that eternal life or eternal death. Christ died for us. John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's one way. In the well, we've been, we just finished a study on the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. There's a tent. There's a fence all the way around the tent. There's only one way in. Within the tent dwells the very presence of God Almighty. If you want to get to God Almighty, there's only one way to get to God Almighty. That's through the gate. Jesus Christ calls himself the door. He's the one way in. You step into that fence, into that gate, the first thing you see is an altar, a sacrifice. Because if you want to get to the presence of God, there's one thing that has to be dealt with before you can get there. And that's your sin. And my sin. If you're going to get in, you've got to go through the one way. If you're going to have your sins forgiven, you have to have it through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for you and I. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave his life. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, because there's only one name by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus. So we have to remember his body, and in remembering his body, in the picture of the bread, we see the sacrifice that he paid for us. The second thing we, that he calls us to remembrance is the cup, and the cup represents our cleansing through his blood. The cup represents our cleansing through his blood, and we see that in verse 25. After the same manner also, he took the cup, and when he supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. So there's some things we've got to remember here. There's some things we should be called to remembrance when we see or take part in the cup. First of all, remember how he sees you. Right? If, if you've asked him to be your Lord and Savior, he doesn't see you the same as the children of wrath. He sees you differently. And Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There was a penalty that had to be paid. He paid the penalty. His blood was spilled, so yours didn't have to. If yours is spilled, it still benefits you nothing, because it's sinful. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If you've been saved, you've been clean. You've been forgiven. Don't forget. Hebrews 9, 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It's back to the tabernacle, right? They had to sacrifice every morning and every evening for the sins of Israel. Once a year, the high priest would make one sacrifice that would carry them through the year, and they would have to do it again, and do it again, and do it again, because the blood of goats and calves is not enough to forgive you of all sins and wipe them clean. The blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God is. We also need to remember who keeps us that way. Right? He's, he's washed us clean, he keeps us clean. Hebrews 9, verse 15 through 20, it says, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were under the First Testament, that's the Old Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You're not getting eternal inheritance through the blood of goats and calves. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both 
the book, and the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. The Old Testament had to do with that repetitive sacrifice. God says, you stick with me, you do this, I'll wipe you clean. You've got to do it again, because I know you won't continue to be clean. But Hebrews 10, 12 tells us this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You see, the priest, while he was in the tabernacle, had to just keep walking. There was no seats. There was nowhere, nowhere for him to sit down. There was a mercy seat, but that wasn't his. Right? And he had to continue walking around and performing the, the different things assigned to his, his duty. There was no sitting down, but Jesus Christ, after he offered his body and his blood, there was a New Testament because he sat down when he was finished. Hebrews 7.22 says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Man, aren't you glad that we don't have to go sacrifice animals over and over. I mean, it's just, it's gross to begin with. If you're a hunter, it's maybe not that bad. But aren't you glad you don't have to worry about it? Forget about the mess of the actual sacrifice. Think about the mess of your life that's been wiped clean. You've been forgiven. Thirdly, we need to remember what you're supposed to do now. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. We have a job to do. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. He's not here. We're crying in his stead for him. Be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How are people going to find out if we don't be the able ministers he's made us to be of the New Testament, of the new promise? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, For oft, often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do what? You show the Lord's death till he come. We're supposed to do this to call into remembrance so that we can respect and honor what he has done for us, and so that we can put him on display. Because it's not just for us that he's done this. It's for all mankind. The next thing that Paul gets into, he, you know, that's, that's the nice stuff, that's the easy stuff, that's the fun stuff to look at, what God did for us. But Paul followed it up with a very strong warning. And what we need to do is, is see a reflection of our status. Right? Paul said that he learned to be content in whatsoever state he was in. His status could change. And he learned to be content. Your status changes. Sometimes it changes because of circumstance. Sometimes it changes because you make bad decisions. And I'm right there with you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. back in our passage for this morning, he says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh, damn, drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep or are dead. For if you would judge ourselves, or if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. We saw a couple of weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 10, 21, he says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. It's not possible to dwell in the midst of sin and pretend that you're okay with God. Yes, if you have a saving relationship with Christ, he has wiped clean all of your past sins. But he didn't do it so that you could walk in sin continually. He didn't do it for that. That's pretending that you're okay with God and you're messing up his picture. And he's not okay with that. We have this word, unworthily, in your text. And before we get worried that we can lose our salvation and become unworthy and have to take that price upon ourselves again. Let's look at that. 
See, there's unworthy and there's unworthily. Those are very, very different words. There's some similarities, but two letters change one from being the same as the other to being as though you were acting like the other, right? That L-Y being, it, it, it just says you're acting in the manner of someone who is unworthy. We can see that in Scripture. Acts 13, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it, is, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken unto you. He's talking to the Israelites. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. What was it that made the, the Jews unworthy at that time? The rejection of the gospel. Okay? So rejection of the gospel makes you unworthy. It makes you incapable of accepting what the Lord has given you. Right? It, it, it removes you from that benefit. Matthew 27, 25 is also talking about the Israelites. It says, Then answered all the people and said, His blood be upon us and our children. Now they're not talking about the blood, the saving blood of Jesus Christ washing them from their sins. They're talking about the guilt. They're talking about the body and blood of the Lord being on them because they're rejecting Christ as Savior. They are unworthy. This is not a testament of their faith. This is a, a testament of, of the lack thereof. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 8 gives us a long list of sins and things that we ought not have any part of. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. We saw that, didn't we? When we were children of disobedience, it was before we had accepted the grace by faith of Jesus Christ. Let no man deceive you with vain words, he says. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye, therefore, partakers with them. You are not them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't be acting unworthily, because the blood of Jesus Christ has washed you clean and made you worthy. Romans 1.32, Who knowing the judgment of God, and they which commit such things are worthy of death. There's another list of things to avoid. He says, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We have no business there. Galatians 5.21, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The point Paul is making in all three of these passages is that the believers have been counted worthy but for some reason, they're behaving themselves as though they're not. And you're going to come to the communion table in that manner? He said, you better watch out. Eternally, you've been secure. Eternally, you have a place in heaven. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now if Christ is your Savior. The only thing he has left to judge is you here right now in the flesh. When somebody comes against the church and, and they're put out of the church, it says they're put out of the church out of the protection of the body of Christ for the destruction of what? Of the flesh. It's the same principle. Paul says you have two options for a response to this warning. First of all, you can judge yourself. You can choose to judge yourself. You see that in verse 28. It says, let a man examine himself. Most of us every morning do just that. Right? There's something called a mirror. I examined myself this morning and my hair looked the same as it did when I went to bed. Not a whole lot's changed. Verse 31, he says, if we would judge ourselves, 
Some of us judge that we look pretty good this morning. Others maybe not. So how do we do it? How do we judge ourselves? How do we figure out what, what it is we're supposed to do? What do you do when you look in the mirror? You, you determine, does this meet the standard? Whatever your standard of you looking like today is. Right? If it doesn't meet the standard, man, you're going you're gonna to change some things. If I was looking like Vinny, man, I'd, I'd be just happy. <laughs> looking fresh today. That's what judgment is. Judgment is placing something against a standard and making a determination. Does it meet the standard or does it not? When you make yourself the standard, that's when you get in trouble. Right? So we need to judge righteous judgment, as Scripture tells us, and that is by measuring whatever it is we're measuring by the standard of God's words. Because those are righteous and those are pure and those are truth. We have to start there. James 1.22 talks about this exact thing. He says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, that's the, the truth, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He's looking in the mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. You see, you can be immature and do that, or you can choose to do that as well. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, God's word, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. There's work that he's pointing out to you. You look at the perfect standard, and you see what it's supposed to look like. And then you look at yourself, and you say, wow, I'm not even close. I got some work to do. Now I'm saved, I'm secure, but, but I get to be a mess every now and again. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 through 21, we're back in the tabernacle. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. He's making a wash basin for the priest. Thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put the water therein. For Aaron and his sons, the priest, shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even him, even to him and his seed throughout their generations. Exodus 38 verse 8 tells us that the foot that he's talking about of this laver was made out of looking glasses of brass. They were polished to such a fine degree that you could see your image. We've got some cool pictures here. How do you judge yourself? You look in the mirror. What do you do once you see what you've seen? Hopefully you wash those eye boogers out. Right? Those are ugly. We don't want to look that way. The priests had nowhere to sit down. They were continually walking on a dirt floor. They got the dirt of this world all over them as they were performing the things that they were supposed to perform. And you are getting the dirt of this world all over you as well. It gets in your mind. And we need to wash it out. So first of all, we need to wash our mind out with truth. If you're going to respond and you're going to judge yourself as being what God says you are, you need to respond. You need to wash. Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify or set apart and cleanse it. He's talking about the church with the washing of water by the word. This is the good kind of brainwashing. Right? This world is lying to you constantly. This world is against what God says. God's word is truth, and this world is against it. This world is on a never-ending onslaught of your mind. There is an attack to get you to believe what the world has to say, what the devil has to say, what your own flesh has to say. It's against God's word. It is brainwashing you the bad way. And you need to come to God's word and say, no, no, no. I know I feel that way, but God says this is true. I'm going to wash my mind out with truth. And I'm going to go that way. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. 
That could be the knowledge about God or the knowledge, the truth that God has given you. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do your thoughts agree with what he says is true? Or do you think you're getting away with it? Anything that disagrees with God is exalting itself against him in your mind for control. We need to wash our minds out. The second thing we need to do is we need to walk in agreement with Scripture. You walk, wash yourself, and then you need to walk the right way afterwards, right? Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, the way in which you go, by taking heed thereto according to thy word, right? By obedience to what he said. Verse 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's all tied to the word of God. You wash your mind out with it, and then you continue on the path that it is moving. That's how you cleanse your way. Your other option, if you don't want to judge yourself, is letter B, you can default to God's judgment. You can just go ahead and let him take care of it. And I hope you were paying attention because it's, it's a pretty bold warning. Verse 29 of our passage this morning says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. That's not talking eternal. That's talking judgment. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There he's talking about eternity. It's the same as he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We saw this several months back. He says, now if any man build upon this foundation, the foundation of Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it, the day of the Lord. When you stand before him, that day will declare what you have invested. Because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, if it's still there, it's going to be purified. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, thereupon he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You see, that stuff, that sinful stuff, can't get in to the presence of God. Hey, priest, if you're going to go into the tabernacle, you've got to wash that stuff off that you die not. Back then it was a picture, but it was also a reality for them. This is not a picture for us. He's saying, look, I take this very, very seriously. If you're going to commune with me, the rest of the world is watching you. What are you doing? Maybe you're saying to yourself, man, you know, my sin, my sin's not that bad. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, there were two sons of a priest. It says, the sons of Eli, in verse 12, were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any offering or any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came. While the, pl- the flesh was in seething, it was, it was on the sacrifice with a flesh hook of three teeth on his hand, and he struck it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So the, the people are bringing a sacrifice. The priest is taking a portion of that. Part of that is what God said to be done. Also, before the they burnt the fat. The priest's servant came and said to them, The man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. But if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now. This sounds familiar. Give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Some were coming having taken excess, and some were coming having lacked. 
Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. My sin's not that bad. I'm just taking first. I'm just being a little bit selfish. I'm just choosing me before others. I still care about others, but I don't do it until later. My sin's not that bad. But what the results of that sin was, as the people watched these men who were supposed to be men of God steal from the sacrifice for themselves, they hated the offering of the Lord. You see, the problem is your sin may not be that bad, but people are watching and you're a stumbling block, and that's not okay. First Samuel continues on in chapter 4. A messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. He's come to talk to Eli. And there hath been so also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck break, and he died. For he was old, an old man, and heavy. And he judged Israel 40 years. You see, his sons were a bad example because they followed a bad example. There was a man who took for himself, and the weight of all his choices finally caught up with him, didn't he? And he was judged for all of those things physically because of the picture that he was putting out for Israel, who in turn hated the sacrifice. 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Ye are the, You are our epistle, our letter written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Did you know people are reading your life to determine whether this Christianity thing is true or not? And you're going to come to communion service and you're going to have all of this stuff in your life that you think is just not that bad. I don't get along with so-and-so, but that's okay. No, you're selfish. That's out of order. That's the wrong order for communion. It's putting a picture out there because you think nobody sees what you're up to. You think no one will ever know. Isaiah 29, 15 and 16. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us? And who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? You know, if you don't believe in God, that doesn't mean God isn't real. You'll just have to answer for that. Shall the work say to him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say to him, or of him that framed it, he hath no Understanding, are you really that foolish to say that God has no idea what you are up to? Maybe that's the attitude that has everything to do with how much of the world's filth is on you, causing you the inability to see what you're into. Jeremiah 23, 24, Can any hide himself in secret places that I should not see him? Saith the Lord, Do not I fill heaven and earth? saith the Lord, Psalm 90, verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. Luke 8, 17 and 18, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given. Whosoever hath not from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. You might put, whosoever judgeth himself shall have. Whosoever decides, no thanks, I'll just keep trying to get away with what I'm getting away with. That's the one who will have things taken from him. You're subjecting yourself to God's judgment. And that's a very bad idea. Ecclesiastes 12:14 For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. Matthew 6:4 says that thine alms may be in secret and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Look you can 
you can go into your prayer closet and you can pray in secret because he sees everything. And he can reward you for that. But there's also payment for those sins that you think you're doing in secret. What will your reward be? Numbers 32, verse 23 says, to be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord loves you enough to stop you. He loves you enough to say, hey, I take this thing so very serious. Here is your warning. Don't mess around. Don't mess up my pictures. He loves you enough to give you the opportunity to come to him and get washed. He loves you enough to give you the opportunity to correct your way if you've gone astray. He loves you enough to allow you to come to him in the proper order. But it's your choice. He concludes in verses 33 and 34 by bringing us back to where he started in verse 20. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Wait one for another. Put others first. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. There's other things that are messed up, Corinthians. These three things that we've seen in the previous three weeks are the ones you've got to get figured out right now. You've got to figure out the order of your home. You've got to figure out the order of your doctrine. And you've got to figure out the order of your walk before you ever approach me and display for the whole world that we're good, you and I. At this time, I'm going to have the men come on up. And the worship team as well. And you guys can go ahead and, and begin distributing the cups. We have come together today as a body to remember what the Lord has done for us. And while these guys are distributing the cups, I want you to take some time to get your heart right with the Lord.